Hi, I'm Ryan McClure. And I'm Justin Zyduck. And welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a look at some allegedly terrible comics and comics-related media. Today we're looking at Marvel's Team America, a short-lived Marvel comic series about superhero bikers from 1982, written by Jim Shooter, along with Bill Mantlo and Denny O'Neill on a few issues, with art by pencilers including Mike Vosberg, Luke McDonald, and Vince Coletta on inks. Uh, if you are a longtime uh, Indefensible Ink listener, uh, first of all, thank you. <laughs> Secondly, you would know that we have covered a bunch of Jim Shooter's work for yes. reasons. <laughs> and so we're giving our kind of obligatory disclaimer that we are not Jim Shooter haters up front. Yeah, I uh, actually literally listened to a four-hour interview with him on a podcast um like the other a couple of weeks ago so like i feel like i should be beyond suspicion here i am a <laughs> a person who is thoroughly fascinated by shooter positives and negatives yeah and i, I think the, the the one of the reasons that at least I, I think we gravitate towards his projects is that there's an earnestness to his work where even when they when his comics don't work it doesn't feel like kind of a cynical cash grab or like just trying to do the expected thing mm. and they're, they're also it's it also keeps them out of that kind of gritty and boring territory that some of like the the edgier comics we've covered get into um so I, i'll say that for for jim shooter and and why i might be particularly interested in his his stuff mm. so today we're going to talk about the series Team America, which uh, was actually centered around originally a, a comic series that was supposed to be based on the motorcycle daredevil Evil Knievel, who in the late 70s was very popular and uh, they were developing a toy line around him. So the idea was to put out this comic to basically sell the toys, uh, but then Evil Knievel was arrested for battery and served six months and the company was not surprisingly looking to disassociate themselves from him mm. so they already uh, had this toy line slash comic in the works and they decided to turn it into this new marvel super team team america so we got these characters previewed in a 1982 issue of captain america the then writer on Captain America, J.M. DeMatties, described Team America as, quote, another one we kind of got forced into doing. And the team's book ran for just a total of 12 issues. So the first issue of this comic reportedly had to be rewritten at the last minute because Jim Shooter, who was writer and also editor-in-chief at that time, wasn't happy with the previous draft. Uh, then a few years later, they were renamed the Thunder Riders in the issue of uh, the Fantastic Four member Things comic. But they really never went on to become second or even third tier Marvel characters. Uh, as evidence of that, I submit the fact that I had really never heard of them until maybe about three years ago. Um, what about you what's your team america brand awareness level <laughs> uh pretty low uh i had like i had 
uh, I'm a kid who used to read the Overstreet Price Guide, just like flip through it just to see like what comics existed. And so like I knew that there was something mm-hmm. called Team America. Um, I I remember around 2016, I was reading a lot of the uh, appendix to the Handbook of the Marvel Universe. That's um, M-A-R-V-U-N-A-P-P dot com. Um, just sort of like a uh, index to like obscure characters. And I remember seeing them there and it was sort of like a, this was a toy line that didn't really work out and they sort of made them so that they could be in Marvel continuity, but nobody really ever cared to follow up on that. So yeah, my, my knowledge is, is pretty low, but I think that that's, there's fairly little to actually know about team America. <laughs> uh, well, we, we and our listeners are about to get a full education on all things team America. Mm-hmm. So let's dive in. We'll start with Team America number one from June of 1982. And uh, right off the bat, I have to say, I do think this is a pretty excellent cover composition. If you can kind of put aside any feelings you might have about the really overt patriotism (laughs) of it. Um, there's this three motorcyclists driving forward and there's this larger looming figure we find out is the Marauder and he's like pointing his fist forward and ahead and there's all these red, white, and blue stripes, of course, that are going kind of diagonally across the cover, creating this real sense of movement. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think in terms of just excitement from the start, this, this does a pretty decent job. Uh, it was also done by Bob Layton, who we previously covered in the Warriors of Plasm episode of this podcast. So oh, actually, uh, this so this cover, I looked I looked uh, into it. The original, pen- so I guess Bob Layton probably did most of the work, and that's why the other uh, original penciler is not credited. But the layout, actually, and possibly the reason that it's so striking, is it was done by Frank Miller. Oh wow! <laughs> back before like. I, mean, I guess he was already doing Daredevil, but he was it was before like Frank Miller would not touch your piddly little motorcycle toy book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's definitely effective. Mm-hmm. So also one thing I I notice is we get this opening splash page that kind of sets up the the team. Um, it describes unlimited class racing, which is sort of the special circuit that they participate in, and the caption says. Sponsored by multinational corporations and industrialized nations, highly trained racing crews thunder around special racing circuits all over the world. Uh, And it just felt like a very 80s selling point to have kind of multinational corporations as like something to get excited about for whoever's reading this issue. Yep. Kids love Reaganomics. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, our issue opens on a mysterious figure in black who is breaking into a secure facility. We will come to know this guy as the Marauder, but he's wearing like a motorcycle, you know, leather as in a helmet, identity completely concealed. And this is a character who, if I had been reading this as a child, he would probably be my favorite just based on his costume slash helmet alone. He basically looks like Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe (laughs) um, or Instant Replay from NFL Super Pro. Yes. The other thing that just stood out to me is uh, the inside cover has a block of ads for all those novelty gimmick toys from from years gone by. So like X-ray 
fission and two-headed nickels and stuff. <laughs> it's weird because I 1982 seemed like that would be too late for those kinds of products to be still be around, but I guess it was still something you could make money on back then. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when the when the bottom dropped out on the uh, false uh, mustache and glasses market, the uh, <laughs> the spy pen radio market. I wonder if it was Spencer's gifts that like destroyed that <laughs> I, industry. Yeah, actually, was, I wonder. It was like the Amazon of of <laughs> fake dog poop. Disrupting the industry. Like you mentioned, uh, this issue was sort of put together like the last minute by some accounts, like overnight by a team of freelancers and stuff. So knowing that this, this was sort of uh, put together because Shooter was unhappy with it, naturally, I think you look at this and sort of try to see if you can see like where the seams are or where sort of the um, the things that are maybe an awkward fit. And I feel like a lot of the stuff in the opening sequence uh, where the Marauder is breaking into a um, high-tech facility, uh, it seems like it was added in the, in the scripting because Shooter didn't think it was exciting enough. Like, there's a scene of the, mur- mm. the Marauder crawling down a vertical shaft, and the caption says, the dark intruder carefully avoids every sixth rung Somehow he knows or senses that any sudden weight will cause them both to trigger, will cause them to trigger trigger an alarm, and that just seems like you saw you're looking at the art. You saw a panel of a guy crawling down a ladder, and you're like, "Can we make this more exciting? Like, what if we, what if we just arbitrarily say that, like, oh yeah, some of those rungs are booby trapped, <laughs> or uh, when he breaks in through a skylight, the art shows him like pretty definitively snapping off like a normal padlock." But the captions assure us that it's, quote, a deceptively simple-looking padlock. In actuality, it's a highly sophisticated electronic combination mechanism. <laughs> which, like, I mean, I would be... I think it's cool enough that he just sort of snaps off a padlock with his wrist or whatever. I don't need to mm-hmm. believe that this is a high-tech mechanism. But I mean, it, those captions worked on me because I, I was <laughs> totally hyped for... <laughs> What was about to come next? Like, man, what is this place where they have these weird locks disguised as locks? <laughs> so once the Marauder has uh, gotten past these ambiguous uh, security measures, uh, he accesses a computer terminal and erases five people's files from the memory banks. And I know that I sound like I'm 90 years old there, but like this is 1982. This is how those, how those actions are described. Memory banks, yep. computer terminal. Bleeding edge stuff. Yep. But anyway, his work finished, the Marauder departs the facility. He's spotted by a guard and runs through an electrified chain-link fence. And again, there's maybe inventing stuff in the script that's not in the art. Because like he just runs through the fence and it's, the caption says, Perhaps his gloves protect him from the deadly voltage. Or perhaps he, ser- he simply endures it. I'm wondering if maybe that was not drawn to be an electric fence. And then they added like the... Because it's like just sort of like a little box that says like danger 1000 volts or 10,000 volts. I wonder if, like, you drew that not to be an electric fence, and then you were like, let's make an electric fence, and they're like, shoot, he just runs through it. Okay, <laughs> maybe maybe he's got yeah. a special costume or he's just really tough. Yeah, I mean, everything's better with an electric fence. <laughs> I mean, it's not a storytelling. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad instinct. Uh, the Marauder hops on his motorcycle and evades a bunch of security cars, culminating in a, an exciting jump over a chasm which allows him to make his escape. So we got sort of like a James Bond opening here that I think is trying to get you excited. Um, it is sort of a James mm-hmm. Bond opening where it's like if James Bond is just sort of walking down the hallway and like a voiceover assures you that like you didn't see it, but he like knocked out three guards and there was a, <laughs> there was a really sophisticated like keypad that he had to decrypt. 
Mm-hmm. Just take her word for it. But this high-tech facility, which is ostensibly a corporation called Universal Technologies, turns out to be a front for Hydra terrorists. So this is established in the Marvel Universe, I guess. Um, a mid-level goon tells a high-level goon about the break-in, and we're told that the mid-level goon will be killed for his failure. So, like, this is a common trope, and it's, like, not this comic's fault necessarily, but, like, it comes up so often in this issue and in the next issue that I just feel like it would be a real inconvenience from an organizational standpoint, just, like, how many people they seem to be killing for minor failures. Yeah. You, you have to wonder, like, at what point you're putting so much money into the hiring and training process that really that turnover is, is cutting into the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And this is like pre-LinkedIn days, so you, you can't just like advertise for Hydra on mm-hmm. your phone. Yeah. Like, like, like I assume they do today. Yeah, LinkedIn is, sorry, LinkedIn is definitely a Hydra invention. <laughs> uh, we're not going to get sponsorship from LinkedIn at this point, but I, I suppose there was little chance of that anyway. Uh, so we're told that an inventor named Masatake Pops Kiramoto has invented a, uh, an experimental motorcycle. He's going to debut it on the Unlimited Class Racing Circuit, which in this series appears to be sort of a no-rules race where you can just use whatever wacky equipment you want. Um, Hydra wants this motorcycle, which seems pretty low stakes for the Marvel Universe's premier terrorist organization, but maybe these are like the C-level guys. Like, there's a a Let's Take Over the World division, and there's a Let's Steal a Cool Bike division. Yeah, I I think this faction of Hydra is like made up of Mostly 40-year-old suburban dads who just want to get away from the wife and kids for one weekend. (laughs) Uh, So we cut to the track at Daytona for a big unlimited class race. Just sort of hanging around is a guy called The Wolf, one of our protagonists, who we are told has recently left an outlaw gang for reasons he himself doesn't truly understand. Um, So to be upfront, The Wolf is the biggest stereotype in the entire world of a, a uh, Hispanic motorcycle gang dude as written from the perspective of white people from 1982. Um, he calls himself El Lobo, which he translates for you in his thought balloons as the wolf. Um, he calls people gringo. He's an angry loner. Uh, I apologize on this comic's behalf. Yeah, there's uh, there's some gross stuff. There's some like legitimate ethnic slurs in one of the issues, which are uh, out of bounds even in 1982. So just a heads up if you were going to read these issues for some reason and <laughs> and we're just going in expecting like a goofy old comic. Mm. We also, he calls himself El Lobo and sometimes they'll call him Lobo and then other times they'll call him Wolf. Um, so I think I usually am calling him Wolf in my head as I'm reading. <laughs> um, but if we... Refer to him as Lobo. Just know that we're talking about him and not the DC Comics main man. Yes. So Wolf knows about Pops Kiramoto's new motorcycle, but he's thinking about how it's the man and not the machine that makes the difference in a race. But suddenly he notices someone's planted a bomb near him, and he dives out of the way. Uh, In a fortunate coincidence, or is it, there is a note addressed to him where he happens to land. Cut to a hotel where another one of our protagonists former CIA agent James McDonald is staying. So this guy has a weird status quo. So he says that he quit the CIA because he wanted to be free of the bureauc- uh, bureaucracy and red tape. But he's still running like an 
anti-terrorism operation just sort of like in his spare time, like independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he knows that Hydra's up to something on the race, uh, the racing circuit, and he's trying to stop them. Um, he's undercover as a well-heeled fan who's there to ra- watch the race, but part of him actually wants to be in the race because I guess he's also a conveniently a, a motorcycle rider. Um, does any of this make <laughs> does any of that make any sense? I think it just makes co- enough comics logic sense. <laughs> like I get that it's the early '80s and we're all you know loyal Reganauts who hate large government getting in the way of our business, but like I feel like. One guy is not going to do a great job of taking down, like, this international syndicate of Hydra unless he is purely focused on these C-level guys who are going after motorcycles and stuff. Mm-hmm. Then maybe. Yeah, he's, I think, just keeping it focused like that is <laughs> is the way to go. So a Hydra assassin throws a knife at him and just misses. Um, but it causes our our dude here to notice a note much like the one that the wolf found. Uh, meanwhile, we meet a young, curly-haired, red-headed motorcyclist named Winthrop Roan Jr. His backstory, and this will come up again and again as we, as we read on, is that he's the son of a rich guy who disinherited him, and so he is tra- constantly trying to raise money to pay his dad back to sort of prove some point on principle. So that's his motivation. Um, and a potential assassin shoots at him. For a moment, Winthrop Roan Jr. Uh, thinks that it could be his dad before realizing, quote, he's into humiliation, not murder, end quote. It's like, that's a really messed up relationship implied that it's like somebody shoots at you and you're like, dad? No, my dad's just emotionally abusive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, there's a lot of layers there to unpack that fortunately we don't get into on in these issues. So he also just sort of happens to stumble upon a note that tells him to go to, to a garage somewhere. Uh, he enters and meets both the wolf and James McDonald. Uh, the wolf asks him his name, and he calls himself by his rock band stage name, R. Period U. Period Ready. Are you ready? This really to me seems like somebody who's like ninety years old at this point, trying to like come up with a name for a hip rock and roller. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because Shooter wasn't that old then, but yeah, but yeah, that's, ah, that's, that's, that's very much like I have never, I have no idea what rock bands are like. I assume mm-hmm. they all have pun names. Yeah, I don't even know what genre he would be <laughs> in with that kind of name. Yeah, uh, so McDonald says that they were all given notes to meet there, and there's another one waiting for him. It says, and I'm going to quote here: "All of you share a common destiny. All of you are linked." All of you can triumph as one, or each of you can fail alone. Die alone, hope dies with you. If you win, I can win. If I win, hope lives on. For all, for America. Who will stand for America? The race awaits. And it's signed Marauder. So like, this is a 40-year-old, at this point, comic book, but that's a very contemporary-sounding, crazy internet post. Like, If you told me that that was posted on 4chan yesterday... I would, I would believe you. It just needs a little bit more random capitalization. Yeah. So all three of them sort of seem to feel like an instinctive psychic link or connection to each other, as though they already know each other. McDonald feels like they should work together, and Are You Ready says that he came there to join a racing team, but can dig, forming one of their own. So I don't know if this is part of the original concept that they worked out, or if 
shooter and whoever's working with him on this are trying to just sort of like justify some sketchy motivations, but like this quasi mystical link will be used as an excuse for like whatever the plot needs to happen for the next couple of issues that we're going to cover today. So you can look forward to that. I'd like to think it was a, uh, a mystical link that brought us together to do this podcast. So it, <laughs> yeah. it was relatable to me. <laughs> so McDonald thinks to himself that forming a team would, would uh, let him keep an eye on Hydra. And then he goes on a bit of a fugue. He tells the others that there's quote, something inside me that wants to be a, a team wearing red, white, and blue out on the track next week. And who better to wear those colors than us? Who better to be Team America? We're three individuals, each striving to be the best, each driven by his own separate dreams. Isn't that what's, what America's all about? So this is a pretty <laughs> weird and like, we just have to get the plot moving and he decides these three randos are going to be a, a professional motorcycle racing team. It makes a lot more sense, and I was, I was thinking about this, if you assume that they were all unwittingly slipped edibles at some point before getting to the garage. Like, and it's like, hey, man, I feel like I've known you my whole life. We should start a racing team. And, like, isn't that, like, what America is, like, all about, you think? Like, I think, yeah. I think this is my, my headcanon is that those, or, like, those notes that they got were, like, laced with some sort of, you know, contact LSD or something. And then the next day, like, one of, are you ready? Is like, hey, last night did one of you talk about like starting a racing <laughs> team or something? Are we on a racing team? Did I did I tell you that my name is Are You Ready? Because that's a, <laughs> I don't think I should have said that. Um, but the wolf, God help us, seems like he's going to be the sensible one here because he's skeptical of this whole three people randomly getting together idea. Um, he bends a huge iron wrench like in half. So maybe like, even though these people don't really seem to have superpowers, he might have super strength because like, you can't just like bend uh, a wrench like that. But the others are able to uh, sort of goad him into joining their team by basically challenging his bravery and manhood. And that's going to be a recurring uh, pattern for this character is that he's going to say like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm going to go off. And it'll basically be like, are you chicken? And he'll be like, no, a Lobo is not chicken. And then you can get him to do pretty much whatever you want. So, the, yeah, uh, definitely a very, very healthy portrait of masculinity as well <laughs> yes. throughout this uh, series. So anyway, it's we cut to it uh, a like a week later, and they're working on motorcycles for the big race. Uh, McDonald says that it took him every penny that he had to buy the equipment and pay the entry fees and other expenses, which again calls into question what a really bad idea all of this is, because he's apparently <laughs> squandered his entire savings on, like, let's just be a motorcycle team. Uh, the wolf says that McDonald seems used to giving orders, and uh, McDonald says that's why they used to call him Honcho, where he used to work. So, let's be honest, obviously no nobody has ever called him Honcho. That's a nickname that he made up for himself. That's like when you, you know a kid moves to a new school, and he introduces himself, and he's like, well, everybody in my old school called me, you know, Honcho. And, mm-hmm. like, and nobody believes him, but... For the rest of the series, I will respect the way that he self-identifies and refer to him as Hancho. So Fair we, enough. <laughs> so we cut to Hydra HQ. Uh, they want Pops Kiramoto's motor- motorcycle. You can tell that these are not, like, Hydra's best and brightest guys because their master plan is basically, like, so this Pops guy is going to win the race, everybody says. So basically just wait for the race to end, and who's ever, whoever is in the winner's circle, just shoot him and steal his motorcycle. <laughs> So that's that's the master plan that we have going on here. 
it has a chance of working, I suppose. <laughs> the one thing that that I also notice is apparently to accomplish this plan, they need a minimum of like six tanks and multiple helicopters. And, I, and it's like a helicopter by itself is better than a motorcycle. <laughs> Just flat up, flat out, like it can fly and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are you messing around with all these vehicles to get one motorcycle. <laughs> I guess I guess we find out a little bit later. It's not just your average motorcycle, but I I, I, I will skeptical. Yeah, I I will still quibble with it. Um, so down in the pits, Team America is set up in their uh, red, white, and blue uniforms. The race is a relay, and Hancho says he'll go first so that he can watch for Hydra later on in the race. Which again, he could do even better if he were not on a stupid motorcycle team. <laughs> Or, you know, much better if he was, like, actually in the CIA like he was originally supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the race begins, and Hancho reflects on uh, kind of one of the premises of the series, being that all the other racers are sponsored by um, the aforementioned big multinational conglomerates, or they're, like, nationalized teams. Um, but they are the scrappy independents. They're, like, totally self-financed. So although they do represent America, I guess... If I'm putting together all these mixed signals, they're sort of like the unofficial motorcycle racing team of the Libertarian Party. Is that is that where this yeah, is they, falling down on the on the quadrant? They have a very lax helmet policy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so Hancho finishes his leg of the race, and then Reddy finishes his leg, and then it's time for the Wolf, who is just being a jerk and insisting that he's not a team player. Despite the fact that he took the absolute bare minimum of convincing to join a team with two complete unqualified strangers. Uh, also, you get a panel here where Are You Ready is trying to repair a part on his bike, and he asks for help from Lobo, who refuses. Uh, so I guess Are You is not ready. I, I'm sorry. You he, can, you can cut that. I will, I will definitely cut that. You know, he, I think he, I think he said he sets himself up for that one. Um, true, true. Pops Kurimoto is gaining on uh, the wolf. The bike is pulling all sorts of crazy maneuvers to pull ahead, and it's clear that this high tech experimental bike is giving him some sort of advantage. Um, Lobo repeats his thing about winning being all about the man and not about the machine. So after a close race, at the very last second, he actually pulls ahead of Pops's superbike and wins it for Team America anyway. Hydra's absolute worst strike team faces a crisis because, again, their entire plan was shoot whoever wins. And Lobo unexpectedly winning messes up the entire plan and they're all in confusion and disarray. Lobo sees that the bad guys are after Pops and tells him to get out of there. The Hydra, uh, Hydra guys shoot at Pops, but the secret of the bike... And this is by way of explanation here. Uh, it apparently has a guidance system that unfailingly leads him out of danger. So if, in case you think that it's stupid that Hydra is stealing a bike, which I do, and I think we all do, supposedly he says that a warplaner missile with this guidance system would be impossible to stop. So I guess fair enough. Although you do wonder if like using it in a motorcycle race is like the best test that this Pops guy could have thought of. Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely questionable. Uh, also, Hydra is now bringing in that kind of Soviet invasion of Afghanistan levels of firepower that I alluded to previously. So, like the entire racetrack is just being invaded by this <laughs> battalion. Mm-hmm. 
So Honcho tells Team America to intervene, and because they need so little convincing to do anything, they go for it and they seem to get into the hero thing. Um, so a Hydra blimp appears, like a blimp. And it shoots a tractor beam down at Pops to bring him on board, but uh, Reddy hits a jump and stows along for the ride. After a moment, the blimp explodes in midair and crashes to Earth. But fortunately for all involved, and for the comics code, uh, this is not like a Hindenburg-type disaster, and everybody seems to be fine on this on this flaming blimp. Uh, when the blimp crashes, we see the Marauder is fighting off Hydragoons. He motions for Pops to escape, and Pops vows to return for this brave dude who helped him out. But suddenly the, he sees that the Marauder has vanished. The cops show up, and the Hydra guys retreat despite having a small army at their immediate disposal. It's like this happens like a lot in comics where like a bad guy will fight Spider-Man to a standstill. And then like, but like the cops show up and he's like, oh shoot, I, I better get out of here. I was able to stop this guy who has like super strength and super agility and a spider web weapon and danger ESP, but like three cops, like I, I can't take that. Like they have like a, you know, granted a crashed blimp, but they got mm-hmm. helicopters and tanks and here's like a couple of cop, you know, squad cars show up and they're like, oh man, this is, it's over for us. Yeah, it's pretty like pretty much like any time you have a bunch of like kids fighting in the schoolyard and an adult shows up, like it, <laughs> it just shuts everything down. Right. Uh, the Hydra guy in charge of the operation realizes that he's really screwed this up, um, and he vows revenge. He jumps out from around a corner with a gun and threatens Team America. He says that he's reasoned that the Marauder must be one of the three, and that this is this will be sort of the the central mystery. Uh, of the series as we go on is who is the Marauder and is it one of them? Team America is able to use their mental link to sort of anticipate each other's movements and somehow avoid the Hydra guy's gunfire and the wolf tackles him. The Hydra guy bites down on a cyanide capsule in his teeth and dies. So again, over a motorcycle. He die. He dies over a motorcycle. I don't care how good this motorcycle is. I don't care what applications it could have. Like, mm-hmm. what convinces you to join Hydra? Like, if like, I get there's like some glamour or whatever probably in Hydra, but like, if you you go into this knowing that like, if you fail to steal a motorcycle, then it's like yeah, chomp down on that cyanide capsule because you are not <laughs> you were you were not walking away from this one. That is that is belief right there. That's <laughs> sheer uh, blind ideology. So our three heroes are talking amongst themselves. They also want to know the identity of the Marauder, and they suspect that it's Reddy because he was on the blimp when the Marauder appeared. But Reddy says he was knocked out at the time. The wolf doesn't believe this, but Honcho does because of the link. So those of you who are listening at home, you might have your own theories. <laughs> uh, but I was curious, do you have any? did you have any fan theories two issues in as to the identity of the Marauder? Yes, yeah, so, so, I, so I, I did look up who the Marauder ends up being, and we'll get to that later. But um, if I'm just walking into this cold and like looking at the clues in this issue and like who is the Marauder, I would see no reason to suspect that it's any of them. That it's probably like a mysterious third party. Like it's it seems really weird to me throughout the series that like they're pretty convinced that one of them is secretly like running off and changing into this Marauder costume and doing stuff in this different bike. <laughs> it's, it seems like a like a really weird premise for a mystery. Yeah, and I, it's also weird because like he or 
day, especially in some of the later issues, um, <laughs> really do much of the action. Like they're, they're they're so heavily involved in the plot that it's like definitely a central character. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm like, it seems weird that they would have a completely unrelated, different character who we don't know anything about, but is coming, uh, like keeps kind of saving the day from time to time. Yeah. Um, but I, at this point, I, I didn't have any theories. So I was, I was just along for the ride. The mystery is working. Yep. Um, but yeah, our first issue ends on a happy note of Team America in the winner's circle. Issue two is entitled Fear, Loathing, in Montana and was apparently scripted by Jim Shooter, Denny O'Neill, and Bill Mantlo. So I think this is just what your wholesome children's motorcycle comic needs is a Hunter S. Thompson reference in the in the title of this issue. Yeah, I'm going to guess that was probably a Bill Mantlo edition rather than a Jim Shooter. <laughs> um, just a wild stab. We still are at the press conference where Team America uh, ended the last issue as winners of that tournament, or as that, of that race, and they're being interviewed about their win. Lobo is, however, not enjoying this attention and gets angry and threatens a, re- a reporter. So then Reddy gets angry at Lobo for making them look like jerks on national television, and the two of them get in a fight. Uh, Lobo then quits the team. So, like last issue, Lobo bends a solid iron wrench, and today he lifts like a barrel that they estimate to be about four hundred pounds, just like like it's nothing, just like over his head and throws it. So, like, does he have super strength? Are we are we burying the lead on this on this comic? Are they planting the seeds for the reveal of the Marauder? Perhaps. Mm. Don't want to spoil anything, but the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> Meanwhile, a man who looks to be middle-aged or so is watching the press conference on television in his RV with his wife. And so he says this is the chance that he's been waiting for and that he's going to join the team because he is the, quote, best mechanic alive. Somewhere in New York City, a Hydra operative in a suit is being told by, and that's like a three-piece suit, not a Hydra suit. (laughs) He's telling a... Hydra underling about Marauder and how uh, Marauder is an extremely dangerous threat to Hydra's operations. So he sends his underling, Agent Marcus, a female Hydra agent, to eliminate the Marauder. However, he also suspects that she is after his position and so is intent on sabotaging her or having her killed in the act of trying to take out Marauder. So in addition to Hydra constantly killing operatives for fairly insignificant failures, they're also all apparently constantly scheming to double-cross and kill each other. Like, how do they get anything done that, like, quarter one, how many, you know, how many agents do we have? A thousand. Quarter two, how many do we have? Thirty-seven. <laughs> they all, we either, we either killed them because some of them, you know, failed the mission or they didn't clean up the break room or five of them just really thought that they were all going to be the next number one, so they killed each other. So, um, yeah, we're <laughs> we need a new uh, a new pledge drive. Mm-hmm. Also, they make a point of hiding this uh, Hydra guy's face. He's like he has like a you know bald head. Um, you know, there's always sort of like a uh, 
they either show him from behind or there's like somebody's gun in the foreground covering up his face. So like rules of storytelling would tell us that surely this will pay off because you wouldn't disguise this guy's identity unless he was somebody important, right? Like you wouldn't just disguise mm-hmm. his face and then never follow up on this ever again, right? You wouldn't. Absolutely not. Wouldn't. Uh, Good. <laughs> Good to know. In the meantime, Agent Marcus uh, reveals that she actually knows he's plotting against her. Uh, but like many a woman in the workplace, even though there's a man in position in a position of power trying to undermine her, she just goes ahead and does her job competently anyways. Uh, hires an assassin who knows karate to kill the marauder. Uh, one thing they do seem to be good at is delegating, though. It's Yeah. Uh, definitely something where that that aspect of the organization is working. Uh, this assassin beats up a bunch of Hydra agents as part of his job interview and is on his way to uh, assassinate the Marauder, promising results within two weeks. Later on, we see him reading a, a newspaper, getting caught up on, on Team America, and the headline in the newspaper just says Team America wins, which I'm, I was just looking at, and I'm like, that's the headline you go with when a motorcycle rally gets attacked by like a battalion of tanks and helicopters and a blimp. You know, I used to work at a at a you know at a local newspaper, and the sports guys were very much siloed off in their own thing. So I could totally <laughs> see like in that situation they would be like, ah, oh, the news guys will, will cover that. We're just gonna get the results. Like it, it would be like. Hey, there's a you know a volcano's erupting downtown, and a gorilla escaped from the zoo, and he's robbing a bank. And the sports guys would be like, "Oh, I got a high school basketball game I got to get to, so um, let me know how that goes." But so okay. I, 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 I found this I found this oddly plausible. <laughs> I retract unlikely. my criticism. <laughs> uh, elsewhere, there's a, another guy who wants to join up with Team America. This being a wrestling cowpoke by the name of cowboy aka luke merriweather so he makes an entrance by tossing a lasso around honcho and telling him that he wants to join to join uh and i'm sorry cowboy but there is really only room in my heart for one comics character famed for using a lasso and that is montana from the enforcers (laughs) um but you know do your do your thing so reddy also shows up at this point and Hancho wonders how these two knew that he would be there. And he thinks that, like, maybe this is part of this. Like, they're all linked. Like, this new cowboy guy is also part of their mental link. But, like, he's in the hotel lounge. Like, Reddy is staying at the same hotel as him. It's not an incredible coincidence they were, they were running into each other there. Cowboy apparently knows the name of the hotel that they're staying at because it's apparently public record. So, like, this is not a mysterious, unfathomable coincidence. This is like knowing where the main public areas are located in the building that you are standing in, kind of kind of scenario here. He is he is really like pushing this link thing that I am not even sure exists. Uh, I think you just you just need to to give in to your intuitive side, Justin. <laughs> but at this point, Reddy is having doubts about remaining on Team America, given how much of a jerk Lobo was. So he demands his earnings from Hancho. Hancho tells him he's already invested them in the next race, which makes Reddy even angrier. Meanwhile, on the on a random beach, the world's best mechanic from the RV earlier shows up to find Lobo strangling a biker to earn a place in a biker gang called the Savage Skulls. 
Lobo lets up and doesn't actually end up killing the guy. The mechanic is, we find out, is named Leonard Hebb. He and his wife approach Lobo and Hebb tells him he wants to join Team America. Uh, at this point, the Savage, Savage Skulls then basically try to kidnap Leonard's wife. And Lobo has a problem with this, thankfully, and attacks them, saying, Amigo, I have just quit the Savage Skulls. So first of all, Lobo really needs to do a better job vetting the groups he's going to join. As you noted, like he just joins up with Team America after you know 10 seconds and then immediately decides he hates it. Uh, and now he's shocked when a biker gang he just joined threatens to harm a woman and just decides to quit right away. Probably should like get a like when you join a motorcycle gang, you should be probably upfront about like, so are we gonna do crimes? Or are we just are we just riding? Is this like a motorcycle club? Or are we doing some crimes here? We do. Mm-hmm. Is it is it assault? It's assault. Okay. Yeah. Not. I'll pass. Yeah. Um. So he's out of the group. Um. The savage skulls are not happy. They start to beat up on him. They're starting to get the best of him. When who should appear but Marauder, who races in on a motorcycle. And so you're probably guessing that Marauder is going to save Lobo and the Hebs at this point. Uh, not really. I mean, he drives in, puts out the biker gang's bonfire, and then takes off on, on his motorcycle. I guess it may not be the most heroic move, but it kind of distracts distracts the gang enough, long enough for the rest of Team America to show up. Uh, so we get new member Cowboy and the rest of the gang, or the rest of the team, taking on the gang. They manage to beat up the Savage Skulls. And Lobo's like, I guess we're a team again for now. And at this point, I was just feeling feeling pretty bad for, for Team America because, uh, you know, he just keeps breaking their heart. Mm. And there's only so many times you can kind of take him back and then go through that, that kind of rejection. The heart wants what it wants. No. Or the, the link wants what, <laughs> wants what it wants. Yeah. But at this point, uh, Reddy points out, and speaking of the link, uh, Reddy points out that Leonard knew exactly where to find Lobo, which is somewhat more mystical than the hotel lounge meetup. <laughs> so they attribute that to the link. Leonard is now going to go by the name Wrench and joins Team America as their mechanic. So we cut to the next race, which will take place among the Rocky Mountains. Honcho talks to Wrench, who's built Team America a sweet dune buggy already. And Wolf and Reddy, not surprisingly, gripe at each other again. Uh, As they're kind of fighting, the hired killer that that was sent by Hydra appears. And he comes up to him and comes up to the team and says... Gentlemen, I am a hired killer. My current employer has commissioned me to kill the man you call Marauder. You will need him tomorrow. During the race until this Marauder shows himself, one by one, I am going to kill you all. So I do appreciate the kind of straightforward shoot from the hip attitude of this guy. You know, he just puts all his cards on the table up front. He doesn't play games. FYI, I'm going to kill you all. Yeah, so he then gets attacked by Lobo and Reddy, um, but he easily kind of knocks him out with a martial arts move. 
and then he just basically leaves pretty easily. Uh, Wrench says he decked Reddy and the Wolf, and he's just walking away. And uh, yeah, he's there's not really much of an effort to like, you know, go after this guy who just said he was going to murder your entire team. Even to call the cops. <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, like, that's 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 what I would do. I was I would I would not fo- I would not chase him. I would call the police. And my, as we yeah, as as we've established, that would just shut things down immediately. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So this this plot doesn't or this behavior here doesn't make any sense, but we can attribute this, I guess, to the link. Maybe. Yes. Yes. I I will attribute anything that that doesn't <laughs> doesn't make sense to fit into the link. Gotta be the link. Wolf gets up and is angry that he's now going to be targeted targeted for assassination. <laughs> he's like, this sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, he almost quits a second time until Hancho questions his honor by saying he didn't think a little measly death threat was <laughs> enough to scare off the wolf. We cut to the next day at the race. They're being cheered on. And uh, at this point, Wolf sees someone in the crowd cheering a woman, and he says, hmm, none of us have ever considered that the Marauder might be dot, 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 a woman. Um, And I have to admit that up to this point, I was also assuming that Marauder was a man. So it's kind of painful to admit, but this Lobo guy circa 1982 is maybe more enlightened in some ways than than I am. that's on me. Yep. I will do better <laughs> going forward. Yep. So then the, the race begins. Uh, we find out any kind of vehicle is permitted. So Wolf is driving the dune buggy to start the race. So if you were picking up this comic that was originally supposed to be about Evil Knievel and featured three guys driving motorcycles on the first issue's cover looking for some motorcycle action, I'm afraid you're going to have to look elsewhere. Hancho, Wrench, and Cowboy are driving up a service road to the second checkpoint in a jeep when they're approached by a Hydra helicopter. Uh, It's the assassin from earlier. He fires a harpoon missile that spears the jeep. They're about to skid off the road and, and die, but then Cowboy uses the winch on the jeep as a lasso and throws it around a tree trunk to save them. Meanwhile, Wolf continues driving, but his arms are getting tired from steering so much over bumps and around turns. The Hydra assassin is now riding a flying platform, which basically basically looks like an airborne treadmill with guns mounted on it. And this is that moment where there's that the aforementioned racial slur. So again, content warning if you do seek out these, these comics, uh, definitely some ugliness. Wolf manages to persevere, but is apparently about to lose control of the vehicle because of how physically fatigued he is. However, Cowboy, now in a mask and full Team America uniform, leaps onto the dune buggy. And he's wearing his cowboy hat over his helmet, which I unabashedly love. I love this look of a guy in a motorcycle uniform and a cowboy hat. I think, so, like, I mean, there's not a whole lot of character to go on, but, like, he is my favorite character just for this reason yeah i mean that that uh jeep lassoing is is a solid yeah solid move there it's a feat um 
and also when they when they do have like their masks and helmets on it's really hard to tell them apart but you got that cowboy hat and that that does some of the work for you cowboy now takes over the steering from a grateful wolf and steers them to the finish line where they come in second and they are really down about second place here like i was i was surprised like the uh leonard's wife is like oh no we've lost <laughs> like i feel like this teaches a really poor lesson in sportsmanship to this book's impressionable young readers they're basically like hey, oh yeah sec- second place first losers this is team america not team canada all right <laughs> my apologies to our canadian neighbors, listener neighbors um, to the north yeah you're very, you're very competitive we know that <laughs> At this point, the team kind of talks about what happened on their adventure, and Cowboy tells them, so after the race, I caught the assassin guy who was the central antagonist of the story and tied him up to a tree, Um, but all that happened off-panel, so I'll just forget it. Forget (laughs) it happened, really. The team then reflects on why the Marauder didn't show up. Um, So aside from his little bonfire extinguishing, that's his his only real um, appearance in this issue. So I guess that sort of puts the lie to my theory that he's a central character in all of these issues. (laughs) He will be. um, So next we see that Assassin escaping from where he was tied up and heading back to the Hydra agent who sent him. They're at a Hydra base, and she plans on killing him to cover up her failure. How how would that cover up her failure? Because like, either way, the assassin that she hired has not fulfilled his mission. You know, like what? I don't, I don't get. Are they just that kill crazy that they're? Because like, I don't, I don't, see, I don't see what leaving him alive and letting him do another attempt is going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. I think it's like once that you have a hammer, every, everything starts to look <laughs> like a nail. It's just like, I'm just, we'll just kill somebody, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I forgot about this little Marauder portion. So, however, the Marauder does sneak into the Hydra base and hit a button, which allows agent Marcus's Hydra superior to see her in the act of trying to cover this up and basically blow up her spot. Instead, the Supreme Hydra guy hits a button uh, and blows up her base, though the Assassin and Marauder manage to escape. Yeah, it would have been really a waste of an exciting character if the unnamed, super generic Assassin had not survived to come back another day. Um, although I actually did, I looked him up on the appendix to the Handbook of the Marvel Universe website. He never does make a second appearance in anything, mm-hmm. so I guess... I like to think that this was like a scared straight experience for him. Like this was early on in his assassin career. And he's like, oh man, yeah. I just, that was, that was close. I got to get out. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my associate's degree. Yeah. <laughs> Being an assassin is not for me. And plus probably like his fellow assassin for like, you really need to keep it under your hat more if you're an assassin. Right. And not just be telling your targets. Um, right up front that you're going to target them. but Hey, going to shoot you tomorrow. Wait for mm-hmm. it. Elsewhere, most of Team America is now partying to celebrate their near victory. So I guess 
they've sort of accepted their lot as horrible losers. <laughs> uh, Wolf approaches and actually enters the party, and he's got a smile on his on his face. Hey. He and Reddy kind of reconcile, and they're a team again. And uh, Cowboy says that they should all uh, enjoy some of his Texas Joy juice, which I don't know what that is. <laughs> I assume it's liquor, but um, well, I... when we we come up with a list of uh, like the book of of mixed drinks that that go along with this podcast, <laughs> uh, we will come up with what goes into Texas Joy juice. I I think because certainly. Reading more of these comics will will get us to that stage where we'll need them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next issue is titled "The Breakup of Team America." Damn it, Team America! <laughs> Don't do this to me again. <laughs> this brings us to issue three, and we really start this one in the middle of nowhere. Um, we're in some kind of a high tech complex we have operatives named mr magic who's a top-hatted stage magician with a waxed mustache mr mind a strange little goblin guy with a giant head and some kind of a visor and mr muscle who is just a large man in a vest they report to mr mayhem who is dressed as some sort of a court gesture um it's all pretty outrageous um mr mayhem tells his henchman the <laughs> Very, very confused that their assignment is to kill the Marauder. He says, quote, I suspect the mysterious Marauder may be one, all, or none of them, referring to Team America. So, like, by definition, I have to say he is right. <laughs> like, like, if you are, you know, next time that you are attempting to solve a murder mystery, Poirot walks in the room and is like, the murderer is either one of you or all of you or none of you, and you just leave. And it's like, damn, he's right. <laughs> he's got he's got somebody dead rights. Um we're not told why Mr. Mayhem cares about the Marauder, or like why he would mm-hmm. everybody cares about the Marauder and like I guess Hydra is mad that they broken with their base or whatever, but um I'm guessing he, like, I'm I'm assuming I'm gonna impose my reading on this on this text that Hydra hired Mr. Mayhem and Mr. Mayhem hired these guys. So again, a lot of delegation, a lot of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. It's the eighties. This uh, really raises the question, though. Like they, they go from, okay, we're gonna hire the most generic, nondescript assassin. That doesn't work. Their immediate next step is to go for let's go with the crazy circus of, <laughs> of yes. villains with like mental powers and magic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's some escalation right there. Uh, so meanwhile, Team America is holding some sort of an exhibition where they do stunts, um, I guess to justify this being a comic ostensibly about a motorcycle racing team. And like as they you know go through their paces and stuff, they sort of squabble with, with each other in their that classic Marvel team book fashion. After the routine is over, the crowd applauds, and Team America's entire personalities are revealed by their reactions. Cowboy says, listen to them cheers. Ain't nothing like it. The wolf says, I prefer silence and solitude. Wrench says, I just want to get these cycles clean. Reddy says, me, I want to collect our dough. And Honcho says, if I had my way, I'd use it all for my private little counter espionage campaign. Well, they say like the hallmark of, of good dialogue is like, if you take the dialogue tags away, you should know who's saying what. <laughs> I and... mean, th- I do. 
That's this like true. Yeah, this absolutely passes that that test. Um, also, Wrench is now riding on the team, um, which you'd think like in his kind of interview when he's talking about his mechanical skills there at the beginning, he'd mention, "Oh yeah, I'm also good enough to be a professional motorcycle <laughs> racer." Yeah, is that like it's they all have this link and they they're all professional caliber motorcyclists is that like part of like the magic that they have is that they're all really good mm. at bikes I, this seems like a waste of a mystical link <laughs> me like i mean being a more not to offend any professional motorcyclists who i know listen to our podcast and <laughs> great numbers but i i think it's sort of a just a little more exciting with a mystical link yeah so but up on a bluff are our three m guys mr mind blasts team america with some sort of cannon that converts them into energy waves and the waves are then stored in Mr. Magic's quote, magically created nulligan, end quote, which sort of looks like the wheel from The Price is Right and Mr. Muscle picks it up and puts it in a van because he's sort of the least impressive of the three um, we are in the Marvel Universe you know, like where magic and super science is sort of an accepted fact and it's not like you'd exactly call like the last couple of issues of Team America like grounded and realistic but it is kind of a jarring leap at like how casually we are made to accept that these dudes are just driving around in a van, converting human beings into energy waves and trapping them inside giant magical magical amulets. Like you can you can just hire these guys. Yeah, it's like you but you definitely need that motorcycle that can avoid projectiles. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> this is way more impressive than that motorcycle than anything that you we've seen so far. Is just just get these guys and just make them full hydra agents. One of us should be running Hydra because, like, we got we got the ideas. We have a, I think, a fresh management approach that they're mm-hmm. they're sorely lacking. Yeah. Um, so our our guys drive off, and the Marauder isn't, but the Marauder is behind them in close pursuit. Mister Mind thinks if Mister Mayhem is right, Marauder will try to free Team America, unless in some unfathomable fathomable way he is Team America. Pretty cryptic and mm. again a weird assumption. Because, <laughs> like, clearly the, the most logical assumption is that here's another guy. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, Marauder tails them into their secret high-tech underground headquarters. He seems to be following them as though he already knows the facility. And Mr. Mine again thinks, perhaps in some unexplained fashion, he knows where Team America is being held. Uh, so for a guy called Mr. Mine, he sure likes talking about things that he doesn't understand. <laughs> like, he is very, he's very much a, like, all I know is that I know nothing kind of guy, mm-hmm. which I respect. Uh, the He's Marauder... just asking questions at this yeah. point. <laughs> the Marauder uh, cruises through various death traps, inc- uh, including some kind of clamping device, a 30-foot-tall laser vision cyborg, a floor that lights, lights on fire, um, a sort of hovercraft covered in whirring saw blades, and various laser and mechanical traps. Um, I admit that I I enjoyed the sequence. I always get a kick out of the whole like superheroes running a gauntlet of death traps uh, scenario, and some of the death traps in this particular sequence are pretty fun and imaginative. Um, they do seem mm-hmm. prohibitively expensive for whatever the hell Mister Mayhem's operation actually is here, but I'm gonna always willing to gloss over that in the name of um, having a good time in my superhero and, comics. Uh, yeah, and to get back to the the whole link idea. This was the moment that that I found the most fun, maybe in this series as well. So, <laughs> I think there's there's something going on there. Wait, wait. 
do you want to stop this podcast and do you want to start a motorcycle racing team? <laughs> I think this is what this whole thing has been building up to. Yes. All right. A million uh, times, yes. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Um, no, we'll we'll press on. A motorcycle team later. As the Marauder is ducking and weaving on his bike, the captions assure, assure us that he has cowboy skill in riding and Honcho's secret agent abilities and evading obstacles and Wrench's engineering knowledge, etc., etc. Desperately trying to keep that mystery alive. And there's a moment where after he drives past these traps, uh, we get a panel where he's pulling a switch to kind of shut things off. And the caption says, but Marauder scans the myriad instrument panels arrayed before him and with the engineering acuity of Wrench chooses to throw the right switch, which shuts Mr. Mind's defenses down. And Mr. Mind says, impossible, no one can outthink me. And I'm like, if you can be outthought by someone just figuring out the right switch in like a pretty easily accessible area of your hideout, you know, maybe you're... You're not quite the the genius uh, you presume to be. Yeah, this, despite their really crazy energy converter ray, yeah, he's not really impressing anybody here. Um, suddenly, Mister Magic ambushes the Marauder with a crazy mental attack, and everything turns into sort of a Steve Ditkoe uh, Doctor Strange page, which disorients the Marauder. Um, I do enjoy the art on this one, uh, even though uh, the notorious Vince Coletta is on inks. I'm, I'm enjoying the art here. <laughs> That was another moment that stood out to me was that page. I was like, wow, <laughs> this, uh, am I reading? Yeah, yeah. Like some Ditko or Starenko. Or... Yeah. It, it gets, it, it's a good comic and like a page at a time in this, <laughs> in this issue. Um, so the Marauder is writhing on the ground, but fortunately it's revealed that he has some sort of mental control over his bike and he commands it to knock Mr. Magic over. Then Mr. Muscles attacks with an electrified staff which Mr. Muscle's insulated gloves protect him from. Marauder apparently decides not to use the cool bike trick we just discovered that he can do and instead fights back in a hand-to-hand way. He grabs the electro stave and isn't especially hurt by it. Um, instead, he somehow drives the current back through Mr. Muscle's, taking him out. Um, and the feedback also takes out Mr. Mind, who had been monitoring the fight. It's not really clear why that happens, but I just it seems like we just sort of ran out of space this month and we got to get this thing wrapped up. It's like, yeah, that, that feedback it takes on Mr. Mind, too, because he's hooked up somehow. Yep, it's the link. <laughs> it's the link. The lights go out, uh, plunging the base into darkness and forcing Mr. Mayhem to rely on infrared goggles. Even though there's nothing in the art that really suggests this, um, that it's dark, because even the coloring looks like nothing at all has changed. Yeah. He keeps having to remind you that it, it's dark. Just take my word for it. Uh, Mr. Mayhem discovers that Mr. Mind is slumped over and suddenly he notices that all of the members of Team, Team America are free of the Noagon and have him surrounded. He fires at them with a laser pistol and marvels that they're able to stay out of his way in the dark, which, again, easy to forget that it's dark. But the wolf muses that the, that the light from the laser gun is giving Mayhem's position away and he leaps off his bike and knocks him out with a flying punch. Now we finally get a panel that looks like it's actually dark, like a black panel. And by the time that Wrench has messed around with some fuses to get the lights back on, Mr. Mayhem has escaped. Hancho says that this incident has proved that none of Team America are secretly the Marauder, because the Marauder was out in the real world beating up the bad guys while they were all trapped inside the Nulligan. Um, But Lobo says they weren't conscious of anything while they were in the Nulligan and can't tell whether everybody was really in there together. So it's still possible that he is one of them, which 
I guess. <laughs> Not super invested in this mystery. And from there, I'll just let Bill Mantlow do the rest of the summarizing for me with his captions. Knowing that they will find no answers in the ruins of the Mayhem Complex, Team America rides off into the night. The wind seems to whisper reassurance that somewhere, a guardian angel is looking after them. So in issue four, we open on a video arcade. We get some ominous narration about it. It is said by those who would know that the games there are almost alive. Uh, We cut to a runaway child by the name of Carlos who's watching people play. He's hoping to find a place in the arcade where he can sleep once once it shuts down. The arcade's two owners and operators come out. Uh, They are Barnes and Gretsch. Uh, Barnes has a bag that we find out has vitamins and protein pills in it. And he opens up one of the arcade cabinets. And there's a young girl sitting cramped inside the bottom of the cabinet with this like um, kind of headgear with electrodes sticking out of it that's hooked up to the machine. And Barnes feeds her some uh, vitamins and protein pills. And they do, they open up another cabinet and they find a dead child inside, um, still hooked up to the machine. Carlos sees the dead body and they unfortunately spot him as well. Uh, they grab him and put him into, into one of the machines, hooking him up to the electrodes. So I just I just gotta say that like after last issue where like you have these four sort of circus villains and a science ray captures our heroes in a magic amulet, it's a pretty abrupt change. Like now it's like body horror hooking children up to an arcade cabinet until it kills them. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty yeah. you know one eighty tonally. This is With... the gritty reboot of, of Team America. <laughs> well, right. That's 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 what it feels like. Is that like okay now now we're getting serious. Yeah, it's the killing joke of Team America. <laughs> so we cut to our friends in Team America celebrating breaking another speed record. A small child comes up to Wolf. Uh, she's from the, the neighborhood that he grew up in. And she tells him that one of the girls from his old neighborhood is missing her brother, Carlos. Wolf immediately hops on the, his motorcycle. Hancho asks if he needs any help. Wolf ignores him. I'm sure if he needs any help, the Link will take care of it. Wolf then goes back to the old neighborhood and visits Reina, who is Carlos's sister, and also Carlos's mother, who is worried about him. And we get a little exchange Wolf uh, between Wolf and the mother. Wolf says he'll go find Carlos, and Carlos's mother says, You are always a good boy, to which Wolf responds, I was never a good boy, senora, but I will look for your nino. Uh, I thought that was a nice... Fun little moment there. Then Wolf asks some local bikers where a young child would hang out. And they suggest he go to the arcade. Um, I think at that point he's told them that he's looking for Carlos. So not just a creepy dude (laughs) asking where young children hang out. He goes with another biker named Stalker. They get to the arcade and it's closed because it's nighttime. So Wolf says they'll wait until it opens in the morning. So he and Stalker wait outside 
all night in what we can only assume is a really awkward, long, uh, silent period. Mm-hmm. So then Stalker repeats the thing from the opening narration uh, the next morning, saying it's almost as if the games are alive. Wolf wants to test this out, and he tries out a game, and apparently the game seems to be anticipating his every move. Wolf agrees with the biker about the game seeming alive. So I have to ask at this point, like, are regular arcade games, like, not difficult enough? I mean, like, we, it, I think it's time that we grapple with the fundamental assertion of this issue that, like, this arcade is making a lot of money because it has more sophisticated artificial intelligence. But, like, it's 1982. Like, Pac-Man is, pl- is plenty hard for people. <laughs> you know, I don't know that like Pac-Man would run better if it was like a malnourished child hooked up there determining yeah. where the ghosts are going. Like I think that I think the programmers really have this down as it is. I mean, or we if we think about like Dragon's Lair, maybe that game is notoriously difficult because it had children hooked children up there. to it. Ooh. Should I'll probably after we're done here, I'll probably call the FBI on on that just to be just to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's. I mean, it could just be that he's not really that good at video games either. <laughs> right. Get good, Wolf. Uh, play some Dark Souls. Yeah, he, yeah, he, but, he, he he tops out at level one on Donkey Kong. I was like, wow, it's like these barrels are alive <laughs> with a mind of their own. <laughs> um, so maybe not the best authority on video games. Um, but then he sees the two owners lure in a young girl, telling her to stay after the place closes to sweep up and earn some money. He's understandably concerned, so he and the biker he's with decide to wait until the place closes. So again, they presumably like, stay and wait around all day together. It's, um, it's good that the wolf has his, his schedule open. <laughs> for the sort of like, I'm just going to hang out at the amusement park all day and do nothing. Yeah. They're not even going on rides and stuff. They're just like, I'm just going to sit here and watch the tent and wait for it to close. And Stalker's like, can I get you a cup of coffee or something? <laughs> you get some like cotton candy or something? You know, that would be fun. I, I'd like to see just an issue that took place during this time period that's just them in the amusement park all day. Yep. Wolf then decides to call the rest of Team America for help, which the captions tell us, uh, the caption tells us this is the first time he's ever asked for help. So a kind of a personal breakthrough there. Mm-hmm. Later on that night, Wolf and Stalker see a group of mobsters, including an infamous mob accountant, entering the amusement park. They meet with Barnes and Gretch, and Gretsch announces his plan to expand their arcade franchise into every state. Honestly, I think Barnes should just fix things with his old business partner and just go back to selling books. It just <laughs> seems like this might not be uh, the way to go, but he, uh, Wolf then enters and asks them what happened to the girl who came to, uh, to sweep and make money this point they're attacked by the mobsters and then wolf and his biker friend are taken captive so they're tied up and and in the next scene we see the captive biker 
strapped to a roller coaster along with all the children that they were uh, exploiting. And Barnes and Gretch have decided that the best way to cover things up with minimal suspicion is to send the children on a roller coaster ride with a clown head strapped with plastic explosives. Again, I have to ask, so like, is this actually more cost effective than just like buying real arcade cabinets? I mean, like, are, is this profitable because it's cheaper to abduct children and to hook them up to the thing? Or is it that the everybody's attracted to how difficult the games are? Because, like, if it's the cost-effective one, I gotta say that, like, how... It's hard to... I mean, I'm not speaking from experience here. I imagine that, like, if you have to abduct several dozen children to operate your, you know, your arcade machines, and then Mm -hmm. they die, and then you have to dispose of the bodies and then get new ones, that seems like that's a lot harder than just buying arcade games. Because, like, arcade games, it's 1982. Like, that's very profitable. You don't have to do this evil stuff. You know, you could just yeah. you could just buy a Galaga machine and like you're 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 gold, you know? I don't, I don't they seem to be adding stuff yeah. that don't really need to be there to this plan. Mm-hmm. And plus everything's just gonna go bust when the NES is released mm-hmm. a few years down the line and it's like spent all this money. Anyway. <laughs> so the the roller coaster starts up and the children plus the captured bike biker are uh, headed towards their doom however they're saved by the timely arrival of marauder and wolf uh, who previously we saw was tied up but got out somehow Um, so he's he's there to save the day marauder uh, also helps to kind of prevent the the explosion uh, from from killing everybody and then disappears as usual, leaving Wolf to beat up Gretchen Barnes and turn them over to the police. And then Reddy and the rest of the team arrive, but everything has been wrapped up. So we get some more teasing about the Marauder's identity. Reddy says, Wolf, I wish I'd gotten here sooner. And Wolf says, are you sure you were not here sooner, Reddy? Um, so we are left with lingering mystery surrounding the marauder uh so i i don't know did you find out when this mystery was revealed it was revealed sort of in the last issue and also sort of in their subsequent uh, appearances in the new mutants okay do you want, do you want me to, do you want me to, to, to spoil this for you i did i did have to peek so yeah spoil away so apparently the marauder is sort of like a gestalt entity that is formed by their sort of like collective consciousness. Like this, this mental link actually manifests itself in Mm -hmm. an entity or like it possesses somebody. I think it turns out in the later issues that like it, somebody nearby just sort of happens to turn it into the Marauder and like it shows up wherever. So basically like, again, the link explains everything like, anytime that you're in too much trouble, you just sort of like unconsciously make a badass, you know, all in a black biker dude to, you know, mm-hmm. come up and save you or put out fires, like <laughs> put out campfires. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what that turns out to be. Okay. But like, what, what's, yeah. what's, what's, what's really funny though, is that if you look in like the letters pages and some of these issues, uh, people guess it. 
Yep. Like, as, as, as preposterous as, as that solution is, people do guess it. And the letters pages are sort of cagey, like, well, we'll see. Or, like, maybe not quite. But, like, yeah, they <laughs> they, they get it right away. Yeah. And I was feeling a little bad that we were, like, abandoning the the mystery and not seeing it all the way th- through the end. I was like, well, maybe it's in the next issue and we should just read the next issue. But hearing that it's, that we'd have to read 12 issues of this. <laughs> 12 issues and New Mutants and maybe a cap- uh, an issue of The Thing. Yeah. To get, the, I, to get some closure on this. I feel pretty good about, about our decision. Yeah. What are your overall thoughts on Team America? I, apparently, you, you do not want to read the next eight issues. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm gathering. You're right. <laughs> yep. Um, so I I did think this landed firmly in the goofy territory of of stuff like Champions and NFL Super Pro, which mm. usually makes for more more fun. Uh, but I did want to see like a little bit more of the goofiness, like the villains in in that issue you covered uh, mm-hmm. they were more entertaining at least than the nondescript assassin i don't know i th- i think aside from that like wolf and cowboy kind of get their their th- special skill sets used pretty often or at least cowboy does it in a memorable way but like if they have these individual specialties that they're known for uh, I don't feel like they all get like a moment to kind of shine each issue or make us feel like they're unique in some way. Yeah, I mean, like it's not like we're looking for you know really in-depth characterization here or anything from our you know licensed <laughs> 1980s uh, Marvel comic. But yeah, it just it just sort of seems like everybody's just sort of you know vaguely unhappy with each other. <laughs> like they, they all really want to be part of Team America, but they hate being part of Team America. Yeah. But yeah, basically, by the if you ask me what my favorite character is, I'm going to say Cowboy because he has a cowboy hat. And that's about that's about he is you know it's either like you said it's either him or Wolf, and Wolf mm-hmm. is a super racist character. <laughs> so I mm-hmm. guess by default, I go to Cowboy, who is also a caricature, but a less uh, problematic one for me. Right. One thing that I noticed is in the back of uh, issue three. So this is 1982. Around this time, the G.I. Joe comic launches and there's like a big full page ad for G.I. Joe number one. Um, There's like TV ads for G.I. Joe number one. Um, It's written by Larry Hama, who is like a, you know, legitimately respected creator and people like love his run on G.I. Joe. Like to this day, he pretty much made that, Mm -hmm. That franchise. Um, I'm not like a, I was never a big GI Joe person, but like I, you know, I understand the uh, the the basic ins and outs of the GI Joe thing. But um, I I guess that ad really accentuated like what a better toy based licensed comic we could have been reading <laughs> instead <laughs> of like Team America is slightly is slightly more long. You know, like it started earlier, so it's like oh these. You know, we got this established Team America thing here. Who are these upstart GI Joe guys? This is going to be a fly-by-night operation. While our our exciting motorcycle comic, well, I'm sure, will go on for 
a hundred issues and they'll bring it back as a nostalgia yeah. thing in the two thousands. I'm I'm sure that's that is happening and has happened. No, I I didn't catch this, but did they actually end up making Team America toys? It seemed like there was nothing about that. Am I right? Yeah, I couldn't find. I mean, I I think that they did make there was there was some kind of toys, but like I don't know that they were individualized the way that like the characters are nominally. I don't know. If there was one with a cowboy yeah. hat, basically. But yeah, I mean, like it's I've never heard of this toy line. Like I've, I had heard of the comic book vaguely, but like I had never heard anybody say like when I was a kid growing up in 1982, I loved my evil Knievel knockoff uh, motorcycle toys. Mm-hmm. If you were if you're out there and you have fond memories of this toy line, please, please share them with us because we don't want to cut short your uh, cherished childhood memories. But yeah, as far as I know, nobody, nobody's ever played with the Team America. <laughs> Team America action figure, <laughs> and and share your your fan theories about Marauder's identity as well too. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of fan theories, can I tell you? I have a pretty wild fan theory about Honcho. You may, yeah, I I have I may have a theory as well, but you can go first. So Honcho looks he's drawn to look a lot like Peter Parker, like in a lot of a lot of the a lot of the issues or a lot of the a lot of the shots. He looks sort of like the way that like John Romita Sr. would draw, you know, sort of like a, a slightly like beefier, you know, kind of, you know, strong chin, the short hair, the, like the prominent eyebrows. He looks just like mm-hmm. a sort of somewhat older Peter Parker. Okay. Honcho is ex-CIA. As we have mm. esta- <laughs> we've established in previous episodes, Peter Parker's dad was a CIA agent. Hmm. So I, you know, I don't have, I don't have this all worked out to like the last detail. I mean, this is, Spider-Man does have a tendency to attract clones and, you know, that sort of thing into his world. Is Honcho a clone or even just maybe more mundane, like the biological son of Richard and Mary Parker, making him the brother of Peter Parker? This is my, this is my, this is what, what I enjoyed most about Team America was imagining an entirely separate crazy theory of my own. I, I think it's, it definitely holds more water than, than my theory. Uh, I thought it was Vindicator from Alpha Flight, but then. <laughs> right. Cause his name is James McDonald. Yeah. I guess it's, it's actually James Hudson. Uh, I had to Google it. So. It does seem like you should have, they should, probably should have cleared only have one or two characters named, or, you know, one character named that combination. Oh, no, of names. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're right. It is James, McDonald, James McDonald Hudson. Yeah. Cause they call him like Mac in alpha flight and stuff. Ah, okay. But yeah, it, it, it is, it is confusing to have like one government agent named James McDonald Hudson and one government agent named James McDonald, mm-hmm. AKA Honcho. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's so important to call him Honcho is to avoid Mixing him up with a much more popular Alpha Flight character. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do you have anything else to, uh, do we have anything else to contribute to Team America discourse at this time? Yeah. My, my only, my disappointment with the, the final issue was just, it was, it had arcade in the title, but it didn't feature the <laughs> right. super villain arcade, which based on the previous issue, I was all primed for some more death traps. So, mm. Ah, oh well.
So without further ado, we will dive into some obscure and bizarre comics trivia with our segment called Cannon Fodder. So following the infamous 1994 crossover Archie Meets the Punisher, in which teen comic book hero Archie meets the Punisher, uh, Marvel writer Ivan Velez Jr. proposed another similar meeting between a Marvel hero and a children's comics protagonist, this time with a character from Harvey Comics. Marvel bought the idea, but was uh, never actually able to get it off the ground. But what was this proposed meeting? Was it A, Casper meets Ghost Rider, in which a spell causes the two characters to switch universes, resulting in Danny Ketch fighting evil bonded to the friendly ghost instead of the spirit of vengeance? Is it B, Richie Rich meets Luke Cage, in which the richest kid on Earth employs the hero for hire as a bodyguard, more importantly, as a possible new best friend? Is it C, Hot Stuff meets Daredevil, in which the little cartoon devil gets stuck on Earth and decides to become the Man Without Fear sidekick whether he wants to or not? Or is it D, Wendy meets Doctor Strange, in which the Sorcerer Supreme and the Good Little Witch must retrieve her magical flying broomstick from the clutches of Doctor Doom? Ah, so did you did you mention the year with this? Uh, it would have been 1994 was the idea. Or like after 1994, so probably 95, gotcha. 96. I will go with Ghost Rider and Casper the Ghost. That is correct. Okay. Ivan Velez was the regular writer on Ghost Rider, and he thought it would be really awesome if Ghost Rider was stuck in, you know, <laughs> Casper Town, and Casper is stuck, uh, bonded to Dan Ketch. Yeah, the uh, definitely the the nineties was was prime Ghost Rider <laughs> time. So that was my uh, that was my clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a Ghost Rider related question, and this goes back to to the original it's, it's the, Ghost it's, Rider. It's the link. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, speaking of motorcycle enthusiasts. Johnny Blaze, a.k.a. the original uh, motorcycle ghost rider, at least, tussled with some evil bikers early in his superhero career, the intimidatingly named Satan's Servants. What was the less-than-intimidating moniker of Satan's Servants' leader? Was it A, Wink Carlisle, B, Scoot Pressman, C, Curly Samuels, or D, Sleepy Crosley. <laughs> oh, you know, I think I have that issue, but I, none of those are ringing a bell. Um, the one that I, I just, I felt a, a connection to was, it was Scoot what? Uh, Scoot Pressman. I'm, I'm putting my money on Scoot Pressman. It was actually Curly Samuels. Curly Samuels. Uh spoiler alert he is later revealed to be the um an in disguise version of uh johnny blaze's mentor slash father figure crash Crash simpson Simpson. this is this is kids you need to read more comics you need (laughs) the comics that you do have you need to read them over and over again so that you won't be in this sort of situation where you have i have the comic it's probably you know three feet out of my reach Mm. and yet I totally blew that one, so I, I apologize to you listening at home for my, for my failures. Um, but I'll get you back with a question of my own. 
Okay. Which which real life musical act has never had a fictionalized comic book adventure series made about them? A wholesome fifties singer and later conservative political commentator, Pat Boone. B wholesome sixties family band and inspiration for the Partridge Family, the Cowsills. C wholesome eighties teen idol Tiffany, whose cover of "I Think We're Alone Now" went to number one. Or D unwholesome perennial rock star Alice Cooper. Hmm. I am going to guess C. Tiffany? Yes. That is correct. No no Tiffany comics out there. Okay. I'm on a, a little <laughs> bit of a hot streak, but as you'll see from my second question, I'm maybe maybe a little bit too confident because I'm coming at you with a Superman question. Ooh. Throwing you that chin music. Uh, <laughs> so this is a... Superman of Earth 1 question, just to, to calibrate your your expectations. How did the Superman of Earth 1 get his name Kal-El? A, a Kryptonian seer named Thundula encouraged his parents to name him that as she knew someone named Kal-El would be one of the only survivors of the planet after her own son, also named Kal-El, was killed by a Doronian fighter pilot. B, the vibrations of the Kryptonian word Cal has special protective properties, so Superman's parents wanted, him, wanted to name him that from the start, but in order to win the right to bestow it upon their child, his father had to be a rival in a series of mental and physical challenges, including a race involving robot pterodactyls. <laughs> C. Cal was the name of an intergalactic musician from the planet Daxum who played at the wedding of Superman's aunt and uncle, and his love ballad led to Superman's parents falling for each other. <laughs> or D, he was named after a thespian friend of his parents who, later, who was later presumed to have died in an incident with a flame dragon, but was actually the time-traveling future version of their son, meaning Superman was named after himself. Ooh. I wish, and maybe it will be, so maybe I'm wrong, but I wish that it was the Daxamite musician, but I don't think that it is. I'm going to say that the, the scenario in A, where it's like somebody named Kal-El is destined to survive the planet's destruction, that sounds like a like an Elliot S. Magan or a Carrie Bates story from the late 70s or early 80s, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go A. You, you honor me too much. Uh, it was actually D. Oh. He was... Named after a actor friend of his parents who was really future Superman. Uh, that that old chestnut. <laughs> Man, I, I I whiffed a question about the original Ghost Rider and about Bronze Age Superman. I am I am not worthy to be <laughs> to be hosting this podcast. If you like to be the new pot, the new co-host of Indefensible Inc. Because I clearly not hack it. Let us know. Well, you know, I, I think I've, I've lost maybe two years in a row for a challenge, so I've been just, that's all I've been doing is just pouring over the wikis and uh, training myself to be the ultimate trivia machines. <laughs> So now in our final segment, we will give you some recommendations for comics you might want to read uh, in addition to or instead of Team America. Instead of. Instead of. 
<laughs> so I am recommending Walter Simonson's The Mighty Thor Artist Edition. It's published by IDW. Um, this collects the first four issues and a, the a, a later three-issue arc of Simonson's legendary run on Thor from the mid-1980s um, with a twist. The pages are actually shot in color from the original pe- penciled and inked pages of original art. So, like, it's actually, like, just, like, it's the next best thing to, like, having the original art is seeing, like, the boards, like, shot that way. Um, So I'm somebody who's really interested in how comic books were physically produced in the pre-digital era, and it's really fascinating for me to see, um, in, like, a nerdy way, to have these pages and be able to, like, see some um, unerased pencil lines or where a word balloon had to be physically pasted onto the board after the fact or whiteout corrections. Um, But the big draw is that... Seeing the art at a larger size and in pure black and white, I, I think really helps you appreciate Simonson's art. Something I never made a connection to before, but seeing it in this context, um, his style kind of reminds me of Bill Watterson's art on Calvin and Hobbes at times. Um, there's a lot of landscapes in Asgard where the sort of craggy, heavily inked rocks remind me of alien planets in Calvin's uh, Spaceman Spiff fantasies. And uh, when Watterson would draw Calvin and Susie playing house, he would draw them in like, sort of a more realistic like soap opera strip style and um some of those faces actually kind of surprisingly resemble simonson's uh, work i don't want to start a conspiracy theory but bill watterson is a notorious recluse who like simonson has an acute interest in dinosaurs and paleontology um it would be irresponsible of me to suggest that bill watterson could be a pen name for walter simonson i don't want this to spread across social media i don't think we should get hashtag Simonson Waters and Truth uh, trending. So don't hashtag Simonson Waters and Truth. Um, don't do that because it would be irresponsible to hashtag Simonson Waters and Truth. Um, a bit of a consumer warning though, I will say. Um, there are some unfortunate misprints in the book. Um, in particular, a couple of pages in issue 338 are missing with the equivalent pages from 339 running in their place, which are then just repeated when the rest of issue 339 appears so like those pages just don't exist in this book um i checked with idw and they say that they're not going to reprint the book and you know i'm not one to complain but like i feel like this is a i spent a decent amount of money on this and i would like to you know see the the full product that i paid for at the same time um i probably will end up buying the uh, much larger and much more expensive John Byrne Fantastic Four version of this um, when I get the scratch together. Okay. Uh, I am also doing an 80s throwback, and this is Spider-Man vs. Wolverine from 1987. This is a one-shot issue. Um, It was written by Jim Owsley with art by Mark Bright, Petra Scotese, and Al Williamson. And what uh, so this is basically a dark and moody Spider-Man story that begins with him investigating the murder of several Russian spies in New York City. Um, I think I've, we've talked a little bit about we've talked a little bit in the past about how you know, moody or gritty Spidey stories can be hard to pull off sometimes, but I think this does it well. And so his investigations take him to Berlin. Uh, this is back during the divided Berlin era. And he basically uh, 
clashes with Wolverine, who has ties to a former spy. And that's that's all I'll say about the plot mm. details. This is a story that has, despite being just a one-off issue, uh, like a special, had some pretty major ramifications for the Spider-Man continuity at that time. There's a major supporting cast member that is killed off, who's, who was around since the 60s Amazing Spider-Man era. Uh, there's also a development with his relationship with Mary Jane. And uh, he also, at one point, he gets a cheap Spider-Man knockoff costume from a from a German like costume store. And I think that was, like, he'd wear that for, uh, wear that, like, a few times mm. in the regular continuity and kind of reference it. Um, the other thing is it doesn't really follow the typical plot shape you'd expect from a superhero versus superhero type of story where they kind of have a misunderstanding and then find out there's a bad guy behind things and then team up. Um, this fight actually has some interesting stakes and, uh, a pretty powerful ending. And along with it, the artwork is moody and elegant. And if you've watched something like The Americans and are uh, craving more kind of Cold War paranoia nostalgia, this is a good comics pick from that era. Uh, Just as an aside, I think I might have mentioned this previously, but when I was a, a kid, my mom asked me, like at Christmas time, she'd bought this comic and a cloak and dagger comic and asked me which of the two she thought my brother would like. And he was like, Wolverine was his favorite character at that time. Um, But I told her cloak and dagger so that I would get this, this (laughs) issue. Um, So I apologize for that. After the fact, Um, it's actually worth a, pretty good amount although i don't have it in good condition uh, i think it's hard to get a hold of in print but it's available through the marvel unlimited subscription so that might be your best bet all right well, i think that will do us uh, for today if you like the podcast subscribe on your podcasting app of choice write us a review on apple podcasts you can follow us on twitter and instagram at at indefensible inc and on facebook Email us at indefensibleinc at gmail.com. Hit us up if there's something that you think that we should be reviewing. Um, If for no other reason than you are curious about it and you don't want to read it yourself because we are apparently, we have apparently signed up forever to take that hit for you. (laughs) (laughs) So until next time, I have been Justin Zyduck. And I've been Ryan McClure. And um, next time, just buy some G.I. Joe or something. I don't know. (laughs) Good night. Good night.